I don't feel like, I don't feel like getting up, right? So when the Bible says, clap your hands to the Lord, song leader says, hey, let's, let's, let's sing a song and clap or lift up your hands or stand together. We're not doing it because we feel like it or we're not doing it because that's my style or that's my emotion. This is, this is how we're showing respect to the Lord. Clap your hands. And so I don't want you to be upset. I, I, Bob said I chastised. I wasn't chastising. I was challenging them to think, you know what? If, if a judge comes in, they say, all rise for the honorable judge. People don't go, yeah, well, you know, I don't feel like getting up. They'll throw you out of the courtroom. We're going to be in the presence of Jesus one day, soon and very soon. So there really is no reason why you say, oh, well, that's not me. Well, I, I bet you it is in certain situations you express your emotions. So we learn how to worship better. White people only worship with their head sometimes. You worship with your heart and your soul and your mind. And I understand that even though you might just be doing like this, you're still worshiping. Um, there are times that I think the Lord, I'm not asking you to jump around, act like a crazy nut, but if, if, if we're going to clap together, that was great. That was awesome. It's a way to express our praise to the Lord. So praise the Lord. All right. If you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, if you're visiting with us, we study the Bible together. And we want you to learn how to read the Bible. We want you to have a Bible. If you're going to be a part of our church, we really want you to have a Bible. We want you to be reading it, learning it, studying it, growing in your understanding. We want to teach you how to read it for yourself. We said one way to read it for yourself is to start at the beginning of a book and read right through it. We've suggested you get a study Bible. We sell them at cost in the back. But we're in the middle of studying the book of Romans. But let me remind you why we're here. It's always important for us to keep our big picture. We said that our mission is to advance the gospel. That's what churches are here for. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said, go and make disciples. Go and preach the gospel to all of creation. So our mission is very clear. We live in a world full of 7 billion people, and they need the Lord. It's urgent. Jesus said, no one comes to God but through him. And we want to advance the gospel so that every person on this planet has an opportunity to hear the good news that Jesus died to be their Lord and Savior. Now, when we advance the gospel, we invite people with information and then we give them an invitation. Jesus said, come to me, believe in me, call upon me and you will be saved. So we're always advancing the gospel through an invitation to come to Christ. And there are various reasons why people will not respond to that. Some of them love this world. Some of them are more concerned about what people think. Some of them love sin. Some of them are fearful. Some of them don't understand it. And our goal is to advance it, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, to live in a way that people see Christ in us, to live in a way that we look for opportunities to show them love and then share Christ with them. Just met a couple this morning. They said... They were out to breakfast, and one of the Bible studies of our church was at a restaurant, and this group of men in Bible study just said, hey, walked over to them, said, we want to pay for your breakfast, and they paid for breakfast for like seven people, and those people were here this morning. They said, wow, any church like that? So it's those type of things where we're advancing the gospel, but not just to get soul scalps, not just to say, hey, look how many people are in the seat here, 100 kids raise their hand. We want to make disciples. That's what Jesus said. He said, go into the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. Now, a disciple is a follower of Christ. It's not just a person who has hell insurance from Jesus. He's a Christ follower, a forgiven follower of Christ. And we said that a disciple is someone who is learning 
to become like Jesus. Jesus said, is enough for a disciple to be like his master. But the goal of becoming a disciple is then to make disciples. So that if I'm following Christ, then I want to teach others to do the same. I want to encourage them to join me. So this starts in the home. Those of you who are parents or grandparents, your desire is for your children to come to know Christ and follow him. My little granddaughter at times when I'll say, who should pray today? She'll say, you, Pop, because you love Jesus. And I'm like, well, but don't you love Jesus? So we're sort of trying to spread that faith so that others become Christ followers. So if that sounds like something you want to get on board with, you're in the right place. We're making disciples who make disciples. Now, we said that there's three ways we think it's important to become a disciple. One, we said that you have to have a personal relationship with God. That includes corporate worship and personal devotional times. So if you're going to become a growing disciple, you need to be learning how to read the Bible and have prayer and a quiet time with God on a regular basis. There's no substitute for that. And we try to teach you how to do that. We try to provide you materials. So it's not enough just to come to church and listen to a sermon. So that's one aspect as we worship God. But then the second aspect is we believe that becoming a disciple is something that you have to do in community. That you need to connect with other Christians on a regular basis where you can get down to the nuts and bolts of life and you can share what's going on in your life. You can share your struggles, you can share your prayers, you can share your spiritual gifts, you can minister to one another. Now, the primary way that we've suggested that is we offer small groups here and we have a growing number of people who are becoming a part of a small group. That's a tremendous way to get to know some other Christians because in a, in a setting this big, we have over 600 adults coming now. There's no way that you're going to get to really grow and share life together in a large group. But in a smaller setting, that's where you can really learn from other Christians, from their example, from their sorrows, from their pains. You care for one another. You shepherd one another. You pray for one another. And you live out the Christian life in community. So a disciple is one who's involved in corporate worship and personal study. They're involved in community. And then third, they're involved in service. The Bible says you should worship the Lord your God and serve him. And the means by which you serve him is so broad, okay? There's so many things that you can do, but God wants you to be involved serving him. Now, what would that look like? Well, there's, there's just untold opportunities, but this is one of the things that the Bible teaches. If someone says, who are the ministers at your church? You should not answer Bob, John, Tom, or Matt, or, or um, Jeremy. Who are the ministers at your church? We are. The Bible says pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So all of us, as we leave here, we go back to our ministry, which would be our home, our family, our neighborhood, our job. And then using your gifts to do ministry could be very, very widespread. Some of you may minister in a prison. Some of you may minister at a homeless shelter. Some of you may minister within the church. If you stay after and you're setting up chairs, you're doing ministry. You can minister through music. We have probably 200 children here every Sunday morning. We have a couple hundred of them on Wednesday night. We have youth ministry. We have adult ministry. We have counseling ministries. We have prayer ministries. We have um, missions ministries. It's just tremendous opportunities. So be asking God if you're part of this church. We don't want you to just come and sit and soak. We want you to serve. 
And you will find great joy in that. So, one of the things that we do as Christians is that we gather and we study the word together so that we can become more like Jesus. So we're in the middle of the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 25 this morning. Let me remind you where we are in the study, and if you're new, you can go back online and listen to the, the tapes of the former sermons. But in Romans chapter 8, these three, four chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, Paul is talking about the hope that we have as, as Christians, that you don't just get saved and go, wow, I'm not going to go to hell. But in the present, we have this great hope of what the Bible calls, calls being sanctified, that I'm becoming more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus. And that leads to joy and purpose and meaning. That's called sanctification. And we're all working on that. We're working on becoming like Christ. But then there's also a future hope, and that is that one day we'll be glorified. Now, we, we need to talk about that this morning because a lot of Christians, they don't know what that, that, um, that looks like, okay? It'd be like as a child saying, Christmas is coming, and they go, what's Christmas? They don't look forward to it until they know what it is. So, this morning we're going to begin in verse 17 where we left off. Paul was talking about the fact that because the Spirit is in us, we don't have to live indulging the deeds of the flesh. I don't have to run around having sex and committing adultery. I don't have to, you know, get angry and be fighting and proud. I don't have to be selfish. I don't have to be rude. I don't have to lack self-control. I can be gentle and kind and loving, free from addictions. I can have peace because the Spirit lives in me. And with the Spirit in me, I'm no longer a debtor to the flesh. But the Spirit, as I yield to Him, He brings forth life and peace. I'm led by the Spirit of God, and I fulfill what God desires for me. I'm learning how to love God and others. So as Paul was, was sharing last week, well, I was sharing what Paul said last week. Paul wasn't here. <laughs> Paul told us that we have the Holy Spirit in us, and he bears witness with our spirit. But notice in verse 17, he says, we're children of God, and that leads him to think of something. But wait a minute. If you're one of God's children, then that means you have a bright future, because all of God's children are heirs. They have an inheritance waiting for them. Now, one of the reasons we don't relate to this is because few of us have inheritances that we're waiting to inherit. If you do, let me remind you, we have a building program. <laughs> but I remember once having a small picture of this when my uncle down in Ocean City had a beautiful home, one house from the beach. And he didn't have any children. I was named after him. I was his godson. He always favored me over my brother. He'd give me more money at Christmas. Not because I was any better. It was just I was the heir, right? And so I used to tell people, that's going to be my home, only to have my dreams dashed because he died before his wife. And it never dawned on me that she had nieces and nephews who got all of the stuff. All I got was his ring. But hey, you know, it's better than nothing. God knew I couldn't handle it. But when you know you're an heir and you know you're going to inherit a castle or inherit a thousand acres or a, a, a mountaintop or something like that, you really sort of think about that and that sustains you because you're like, this is going to get better when I inherit things. So Paul says in verse 17, if we're children of God, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Now let me just pray real quick as we study these verses. Lord, 
May the Holy Spirit be our teacher as we think about what we have to look forward to. And Lord, may you just change our lives because I know that all of us here suffer. It's what the Bible teaches. Sustain us in our sufferings, I pray in Jesus' name, by giving us a hope of the future. Amen. So Paul puts this condition out. He says, look, to be a Christian, you have this tremendous future. You are going to inherit glory. But you also have present sufferings. And you can't separate them. Philippians 1.29 says, To us it has been granted not just to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer. And sometimes we hide that when we preach the gospel. Do you want Jesus to forgive you? Do you want to have a really good life? And then people get saved and they go, why are things so hard? And we're like, oh, JK, I forgot to mention, you're going to suffer, right? That's something that you really need to count the cost. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you don't have any problems. Does not mean that Jesus is going to take away all your problems and give you perfect marriage, perfect kids, perfect health, perfect job, lots of prosperity. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it says quite the opposite. It says, if you're a Christian, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Bible says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so we need to get used to the idea that suffering is not some strange thing, but it's a normal part of the Christian's experience. So notice how Paul frames this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the reality is, this world involves suffering. That's why it's stupid to sing songs like this. Ever since I'm a Christian, now I am happy all the day. I want to slap that song. (laughs) Because it's not true. Christians are not happy all the day. If you're happy all the day, all the time, something's wrong with you. No, really. So, so we have this false idea of what it means to be a Christian. How are you? Fine. I'm happy. All the time. As opposed to saying, well, sometimes I'm doing well, but sometimes I'm suffering. So what are the sufferings of this present world? Well, there's sufferings that are general to everybody, right? Unbelievers suffer from cancer, sickness, family problems, Natural disasters, terrorism, but you know, the same stuff we all suffer with, financial problems, anxiety, depression. But Christians have a second layer of suffering because living in this world, Satan hates us. The world is against us. And so there are unique sufferings that come to the Christian. For example, Christians suffer with their conscience. Unbelievers enjoy sin, but Christians endure sin. So, so being a Christian means that there are going to be dark nights of the soul where Satan comes against me, where, where my heart is breaking, where I'm bleeding on the inside, where I'm weeping before God. And there are many ways that I could easily get out of that suffering. I could just start getting drunk and taking substances. Or if I'm suffering in a difficult marriage, I just go, I don't need this. I'll go find an easier wife. Or um, even as parenting, parenting's hard. Um, This lady had a t-shirt that said, I've decided that I don't want to have kids. Then it said, the kids aren't taking it real well. (laughs) So you can't just say, oh, I'll just walk away from my sufferings. But interestingly, the greatest suffering right now on this earth are Christians are suffering persecution. We don't even know about that. We don't even think about that because we're not in this little section 
But all over the world, millions of people are dying, beaten, arrested, punished, ostracized, suffering for Christ. And so the means by which Paul tries to encourage us is he says, think beyond the current sufferings. They're just, in in Corinthians 4, 17, he says this, they're temporary light afflictions. Now, the world has tried to come up with something. They'll go, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And, you know, that's true, but that doesn't give me a whole lot of hope because after it passes, then what? This too shall come. You know, it's like, is it just going to happen again? So Paul says, I want you to focus on the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, what does he mean by that? Why doesn't he just say, it's going to get better when we go to heaven? So there's three things I want you to think about the glory to be revealed to us. Number one, the glory to be revealed in creation. We're going to read about this. The Bible teaches that right now, as pretty as this world is, that it's messed up. It's under a curse. And so we have tsunamis and earthquakes and plagues and famines and difficult situations in this world. We live in a terrorized, trembling world. But when Christ returns... No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. This world will be restored to its original purpose, and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. Even the way animals, I just read, it was horrible. A a pit bull grabbed a four-year-old from from its mother and and mauled it and killed it. None of that will happen when the glory of the Lord returns to this earth. Because creation, the Bible says, a lion will lay down with a lamb and a little child will lead him. So there's the glory of a restored creation. But secondly, there's the glory of the renewed Christian. When Paul says the glory to be revealed to us, we actually personally will partake of the glory of Jesus. He will infuse within us his glory in such a way that the Bible calls us glorified. We're going to lose our sinful nature. We're going to lose our struggle with sin. And we're going to have this perfect, unending body that experiences no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Unspeakable ecstasy and joy and hope and brightness and beauty that we can't even imagine. God's going to dazzle us when he glorifies us. But ultimately, the greatest expression of the glory to be revealed to us is not creation or Christians. It's Christ himself. When Jesus comes back in all of his glory, it will be so amazing that the Bible describes it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1. Jesus will become to be marveled at among all who believes. There's some things you've seen on real TV. You're like, wow. That's nothing compared to what it's going to be like when we see our blessed Lord Jesus in all his glory with his nail-pierced hands coming back to this earth, ruling and reigning in person, we will be so taken up and dazzled by the presence of, of, of glory when our pain is gone, our Savior is here, our sufferings are over, we'd enter into our perfect utopia, and it's going to last forever. So Paul says, in light of that, he says, don't look at suffering that something's going to frustrate your hope, Suffering is going to further your hope because your present agony won't compare to your future ecstasy. So right now you're going, I hate my life. I hate my marriage. Or my heart's breaking over my kids. Or I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I'm afraid these terrorists are going to blow me up. I hate this country. I can't stand this. I'm depressed. I'm full of anxiety. I don't know what's going on. And Paul says, I understand that, but remember this, that this is only temporary. 
So, first thing he says is present suffering doesn't compare to future blessing. Now, the second thing he's going to do is he's going to call creation as a witness. And he's going to tell us this, that creation suffers and longs for future blessing. So he's going, hey, you're not alone. You're not the only one who's gone, life hurts. He goes, even creation gets it. See those trees out there? They get it. So what he does is he personifies creation. This is really interesting. Look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. One translation says, creation's on its tiptoes, waiting for something to happen on this earth. And what's going to happen is the revealing of the sons of God. So creation's not narcissistic. It's not going, I can't wait till we're revealed and people are focusing on me. Because the earth is this drama stage in which God's going to reveal his children. But creation knows that when that happens, they're going to get blessed too. So when you're walking through the woods, those trees are looking at you and they're wondering, man, are they one of the sons of God? Creation itself longs for the revealing of the sons of God. And here's why. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, this is a really interesting. What Paul's referring back to is Genesis. See, the Bible gives a very compelling worldview. You know, you grew up and people are telling you you just blew up out of a big bang and you're just here through some primordial soup and this round globe that's floating around in space is just a chance of random time. Nonsense. The Bible's very clear. God spoke it into existence and it's very purposeful. And when he first created this earth, he said it's very good. But when Satan rebelled and then he came to earth and he tempted Adam, God began to hand out punishments. And he went like this. He said to Satan, he said... A child will be born that will crush your head. He said to Eve, I will greatly reduce your pain or increase your pain in childbirth. He said to Adam, from the sweat of your brow, you will bring bread. But then he said to creation, cursed are you. And creation's like, wait, I didn't do nothing. Them guys all did something. The devil tempted Eve, I didn't do nothing. And, And so that's why it says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation didn't volunteer and say, curse me too, right? But it was, it was subjected to this curse in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. Do you see the connection? We've been reading in Romans 6-8 through 8 that sinners are slaves to corruption. But Christ's gospel frees us from that. And we're gradually being set free from being selfish sinful people and becoming Christ-like servants. But Paul says, you're not the only one that's longing for that. Creation itself is longing to be set free from its slavery. It wants to enjoy and be a part of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, suffering doesn't compare to blessing. Creation suffers and longs for blessing. But now we're going to find out this. Paul goes, and so do Christians suffer and long for blessing. Look at verse 23. And not only this, can we get 23? And not only this, over, of 22 rather, for we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, right? So he has told us that this whole earth groans. 
You know, I think about when, when there's a seismic fault or an earthquake, the earth's going, ah, it's not what it should be. But Paul says, that's like us, Christians. He says, we groan within ourselves. Now, why do we groan? Well, we groan because we personally aren't what we want to be. I don't know about you, but I hate some of the thoughts I have. Do you? I hate when I begin to see that I'm, I'm even worse than I thought I was. I long for a day when I can have nothing but love and joy and holy thoughts and, and perfect peace and Christ-likeness. But I know from the Bible I'll, I'll never have that perfectly in this life. So I groan within myself. But notice Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that's supposed to comfort me. Because in the Old Testament, they gave the first fruits of their offering to God in hope of what's to come. God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit as the first fruits in hope of what's to come. And what he means by that is the Holy Spirit is our down payment of the glory to come. So in Ephesians, it says we are sealed by the Spirit as a down payment. So here I am in this life. I'll give you an example. Having children will be your greatest joy and sometimes your greatest sorrow. Can I get an amen? Or some of you are like, not me, brother. It's nothing but cake. Your child's only one. Come back and talk to me when they're 18, right? So there was a time when one of my kids was making bad decisions and it was breaking my heart. And I was in my study on my knees sobbing. I wasn't even, I was just devastated, weeping, groaning, not even knowing how to pray to Jesus. And in the midst of all of that pain and sorrow, it dawned on me, Satan is probably laughing right now. He probably thinks that, yes, look at how I've destroyed his life. And in this very surreal moment, the presence of the Lord was so real to me that it's so weird. I was crying, but I felt peace in my heart. I felt the presence of Jesus. And it was almost like I was crying on the outside, but peaceful on the inside. And I thought that very thought, like Satan has no idea. He's not winning here just because I'm suffering and crying. Because Christ is with me. That very moment, the phone rang. And it was this one of my children. And I was obviously very shaken because I was weeping. And so they're like, what's wrong, Dad? And I'm like, well, I, you know, if you want to know, it's really because I'm just so brokenhearted about where you are in your life. And it wasn't like they said, oh, Dad, today I want to follow Jesus. But it was just an interesting moment of those, those groanings. And maybe you've had those groanings. Maybe you've had those times where you just, you're like, I can't go on. I can't take it. And it may be a, maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe, maybe you're depressed. Maybe you've got severe anxiety. Or, or maybe you've gotten a broken heart. Or just whatever. Your marriage fell apart. Or, or it's just, there's these inexplainable groanings that, that we don't even know what to say. But notice, we're groaning, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, notice a parallel. Creation is waiting eagerly for what? For the revealing of the sons of God, so it'll be free. But look what we're waiting for. We're waiting for our adoption as sons. Now you go, well, I thought I already was adopted as a son. We just read earlier, I have become a son of God. The Spirit's in me crying, Abba, Father. So what we're going to find is that the New Testament holds out that some of God's promises are already experienced, but not yet fulfilled. So... 
Any of you who've ever adopted a child overseas sometimes can literally have this experience. While your child may be adopted on paper, they're not yet fully adopted in practice. You have not yet brought them home. So that child who may be in a very difficult place in, the, in their adoption center, very lonely, very hopeless, if they begin to grasp that they are adopted, then they wait eagerly for their adoption when the parents actually come for them. And that's what God's telling us. You are adopted, but you're waiting eagerly for your adoption, which encompasses the redemption of our body. So, so what's he saying here? I thought I already am redeemed. I thought I am adopted. You are, but you haven't fully experienced it yet. And so the rest of our lives, in case someone gave you the impression that there will come a day as a Christian when you'll be like, I never get sad. I never struggle with sin. I never worry. I never have any problems. All I do is praise the Lord all day long. I'm not even going to die. That's not going to happen in this world. All of our lives, we groan and we look forward to the final redemption of our body when it will finally be well with our soul. As the songwriter said, O oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The cloud shall be rolled back like a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen? So, listen, I get it. Many of you are going through unspeakable pain right now. But Paul's saying, look, hang in there because a glorious day is coming. So, he says, creation longs to be free from suffering. And then he says, Christians long to be free from suffering. But finally, as we talk about that, he goes, here's what sustains us. What's going to keep me from walking out of the stadium? You see, being a Christian, you, you join the Lord's family. You're in the stadium. You say, what do you mean? Well, since it's playoff weekend, what happens when a team's getting blown out? The fans lose hope, and they walk out of the stadium. And as Christians, there are times that you just want to quit. You're just like, I can't take this. It's not working. It was better before I was a Christian. And God says, here's what's going to sustain you, your hope, your hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not something that you think is going to happen. I hope my team wins. Hope in the Bible is absolute certainty. I know it's going to happen. It's confident expectation. It's just what's going to keep you going. You know when the dentist goes, and you're like, oh, 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 I think the Norcane's not working. And he says, it's, it's only going to be, it's almost done, you know, which is a big lie, right? It's like, <laughs> feels like about two more hours. But what sustains you? You're like, it's not always going to be like this. Something better is coming. So Paul says, look, when you became a Christian, you were taught of an unseen world, of a glorious Savior who you can't see, of, of a coming kingdom that you can't see. If you could see it, you wouldn't even need to hope for it because it's already here. But he says this, in hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. See, if Jesus was here and we were already glorified and all our sufferings were gone, we wouldn't need to hope. But he says, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So in many ways, that's the primary application of this passage. 
Are you suffering this morning? Yeah, possibly. If you're not, don't feel bad about yourself. You're going, I kind of feel bad. I'm, things are going pretty good. Hey, listen, this is what I tell people. If things are going really well, ride that wave as long as you can. James chapter 5 says, if anyone's cheerful, let them sing praises. So get your praise on. But it also then says this, but if anyone's suffering, let them pray. So mark this down. If you're not suffering, it's likely that you will be. And when you are suffering, it's important that we have passages like this that remind us, hey, hang in there. There's a great future. Don't let suffering frustrate your hope. Let it further your hope. I've got a bright future. And as a result of that, I'm not leaving the stadium. I'm not going back to my sins. I'm not giving up on Jesus. But with perseverance, I'm going to hang in there and I'm going to pray that the Lord will help me to eagerly wait for him. God is at work in our lives and he wants us as a church, every single one of us, to finish well. So one of the things I really want to encourage you to do is sometimes we keep our suffering so private. We think, if I tell people that I have problems, that they'll think less of me. It's quite the opposite in the Bible. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So I certainly hope that first of all, you and your spouse, if you're married, are able to talk about, hey, what are some things that you suffer with? Hopefully you already know that. Hopefully you always pray with your spouse about things that they're suffering. But then as a Christian community, remember it's not about us. As long as my boat ain't leaking, why do I worry about everybody else? It's about a community. We're, we're a hospital. We're always realizing that people are coming into our church with problems and that we want to extend to them not judgment, but grace and mercy and acceptance and prayer. So this is a really cool passage, and it's in the midst of, of what we're going to learn next week, that it's the Holy Spirit who prays for us to help us in our sufferings. So as we close, I want to encourage you that given the wonders of what's coming in the future, may the Lord give you the strength to say, you know what? I'm willing to hang on. Come hell or high water. Isaiah said it this way. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant, but he still walks in darkness? And some of you are going, I'm trying to do what Jesus wants, but my life feels so dark. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys Jesus, but still walks in darkness? It says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and be stayed on his God. So take courage. And this morning, for some of you, you need to ask a preceding question, and that is, am I even going to be in heaven? You can't have a hope of heaven unless you have your ticket. The Bible calls that ticket your name being written in the book of life. The Bible says if your name's not written in the book of life, you're going to suffer the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord. And you might say, well, if I just hang in there through my sufferings, won't it get better? No. If you're not a Christian, God has no promise for it to get better for you. And so the means by which your Christian journey begins is you come to God through Jesus. Well, what does that look like? Well, there's a couple starting points. Number one, you have to admit to God that you're a sinner and that you've lost your way. And that's hard for a lot of people. I'm not a drug addict. I'm a good person. I go to church. Listen, Jesus says you and I are sinners who have gone our way. 
we've Burger Kinged our lives and done it our way. And we've made a mess of our lives, even if you don't realize it. And those sins need to be forgiven in order for you to have a relationship with God. And the only way they can be forgiven is through Christ, not purgatory, penance, prayers, giving your money. Christ alone. Christ shed his blood on the cross. And when he hung up there, he died in place of you for your sins. And he said, it is finished. So in order to have a relationship with God, the Bible says we come to God through Jesus. We invite Jesus who died and rose again to be our Lord and Savior. So that our hope of heaven is not sustained by whether I'm good enough. It's Christ was good enough and he paid for us. And so either this morning you're a Christian or you aren't. You're saved and forgiven or you're lost and unforgiven. But Jesus invites you right now. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to make that personal decision. And right now in your mind you might be wrestling, what will people think of me? I want you to think about that for a moment. Who cares what people think of you? When you die, you're not going to stand before people. You're going to stand before Jesus. You might be thinking, well, I don't know if I want to give this up. What is there worth not giving up? Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Or you might be thinking, I'll do this when I get older because after all, I'm young now and I got a whole life ahead of me. The hallways of hell are lined with people who thought they had ample time to come to Christ. So if God is tugging at your heart right now, please don't wait. The best you know how, right there in your seat. You don't have to fully understand it. If you know you're a sinner and you believe that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you believe that he wants to be your savior, you can make that decision this morning to trust and follow him. It's as simple as this. The Bible says if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. Whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. If you don't know that you've ever done that, I want to invite you right now to make that decision. Would you pray with me? While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we had a man come to Christ after our first service. I hope and pray that maybe today someone will come to Christ right now. If that's you, if God's speaking to you and you have never come to Jesus, maybe you didn't understand before that it's a free gift that he died for you. Right now in your seat, the best you know how, just say, Lord Jesus. You don't have to say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner but I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins and rose from the dead. Please come into my life from this day forth and be my Lord and my Savior. Please forgive me so that I can have the hope of going to heaven. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I always like to encourage people to acknowledge that decision for their own benefit. So if you prayed that prayer, I want to say a prayer for you, and later I want to give you a booklet. But is there anyone today that says, Pastor, I chose today to follow Christ? If you would just look up at me and raise your hand so I can pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, and I won't delay this. Is there anyone today that has made a decision? Just raise your hand and look up at me. Don't be afraid of what anyone else will think. Okay, Father, thank you. Thank you for your gospel. And now as your children, help us to keep advancing that gospel. Help us to keep encouraging Christians. And Lord, thank you that our troubles will soon be over. So Lord, with that hope, may we be able to help each other to carry on, no matter how bad life seems. 
Bless your children. Strengthen us in our service, in our parenting, in our worship. Forgive us for all of our failures so that as we go out this week, we can start fresh with you and we can have divine opportunities and divine appointments to be a blessing to others. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. May you continue to get all the praise and glory in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be sure to read the rest of Romans chapter eight for next Sunday.